This week, the sermon title is Thrown Out or Thrown Up. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're longing for more of Jesus. And we're longing for more of the heart of Jesus this morning. I ask, God, that this morning you would stir our hearts, that you would take us to a whole new level with you, that you'd give us your heart of compassion for this world. Lord, naturally, we don't have this. And so I just ask that through the power of your word, that it would speak this life into our hearts. I ask that that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would move on our hearts, that we would walk out of here to be laborers for you. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us this morning. Thank you for making this time worthwhile because we will have heard from you. Thank you for being here in the midst of us because there is more than two or three of us meeting together. We look forward to hearing your voice speaking through the power of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The students at our school have been studying about Jonah. They've been going through some different parts of the story of Jonah. If you were here for Vespers, we had uh, about a month ago, they, they did some songs on Jonah. They talked about Jonah. Today, we're going to look a little bit more at the story of Jonah. Well, last Sunday, my in-laws wanted to have a special birthday celebration for my sister-in-law, Emily, and for Leah, because their, their birthdays are, are within, uh, Leah's is at the end of August, and Emily's is, is in September, and so they wanted to have a special get-together to celebrate both of their birthdays at once. So this past Sunday, they decided to take us on a special trip. Now, if you've been watching, I guess the BBC just recently put out a new program, but there's been some amazing things happening on the coast of California this year. Many of you gone to the coast and seen some unusual things? If you haven't, maybe go on the whale walk this afternoon. But I know David has some amazing pictures of a whale that came right up where they were kayaking. Well, my mother-in-law heard about how there were all, there's all this life right now in the Monterey Bay and how all of a sudden they're seeing all these whales and all this life that they haven't normally seen. And she said, this is a year like no other. We've got to go whale watching. And so... They signed us up, and we were going to go out early on Sunday morning to go whale watching. Now, as we were going to go whale watching, Emily and, and my father-in-law were talking about, you remember that one time when we went whale watching, and we saw no whales the whole time? <laughs> we were just looking at the water and enjoying the, the, the day, but there was no whales. So I thought, well, you know, hopefully we'll see a whale today. It sounds like it's an amazing time, but I don't know how many whales we'll see. Well, we got out and the captain told us that this is going to be an amazing day because we've been seeing a lot of whales. We get out and we go out into the bay and there's a picture of, of one of the, the whale flukes that we saw. Now, you get really excited when you, you see the whales, you see the water moving, you, you see the, the blowholes going, you, you, you can hear it. You're, you're within maybe 100 yards, 200 yards of these massive creatures, but you have no idea what's really there. It's, it's hidden under the water. But then, all of a sudden, they would say, watch. Watch for when the humpback arches its back. So we'd watch, and then my mother-in-law would be like, there, it's about to happen. And then it wouldn't happen. I was just waiting for it, waiting for it. And then all of a sudden, I saw it. Up out of the water came the tail. So we were there. We were taking pictures of the tails. We were getting excited about, about the tails. And you're seeing just the tail of the whale. And like, that's a great thing to see a whale's tail, isn't it? 
But we're there, and, and all of a sudden, the uh, captain begins talking about how every once in a while, whales will breach. And you'll see this massive whale just come up out of the water. And I thought, wow, that would be amazing to see. She said, we're not sure why whales do this. We're not sure what compels them to do this. Maybe it's somehow to scare the fish, or maybe it's because they have an itch on their skin. Or She was going through these different things about why whales might breach, and I'm just there holding my phone, and I'm thinking, Lord, would you please give a whale an itch right now? I don't know what it takes, if it's an extra barnacle or something, just give a whale an itch. I want to see a whale breach. I want my family to be able to see a whale breach because we don't go whale watching very often. And there we were when all of a sudden you see it on the screen. Up comes this massive whale out of the water, not five minutes after she'd been talking about whales breaching. We'd been praying that God would show us a whale breach. That was the only one we saw all day. It was amazing to see this huge creature that God has created just come spiraling out of the water. There's this huge splash. Everybody got so excited to see this massive whale. And thankfully, I had that camera still there. I was able to catch a few blurry pictures of a whale. It's amazing the creatures that God has made. What's even more amazing is how those creatures are under his direction. How God can give a whale an itch and cause that whale to do something extraordinary. God can take a whale and do something special with it. God can take a big fish and do something special with it. You know the story of Jonah. Go with me to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah is an incredible story about a man who received a message from God. In Jonah chapter 1, it, it, it tells about how God came and said, Jonah, the, the wickedness of of the Ninevites have come up before me and I've seen their wickedness. Go and tell them that I'm going to destroy Nineveh. I don't know about you, but sometimes when God sends me a message or, or when, I, when I recognize that God wants me to tell somebody about him, it can be scary. It can be intimidating to think about going to my next door neighbor. It can be intimidating to think about talking to my, my boss at work about Jesus. Not so much when you're a pastor. It's a little bit easier then. But it can be intimidating to talk to my family who isn't Christian about Jesus. And apparently this is what happens for Jonah. Because Jonah, what does he do? He gets on a boat and he's running away as fast as he can. Trying to get away from doing the mission that God had placed on him. Jonah is a reluctant witness. So often I've been a reluctant witness. But yeah, it's great that I have this relationship with you God. It's great that... that I know all this truth, but I don't have anything to share with anybody. I don't really know how to make a difference out there. I, what do I have to offer? Oftentimes, I've been a reluctant witness, not willing to go that extra mile in order to share about Jesus. But you know, God has many ways of compelling us to go out and to share. God has many ways of pushing us to go to extremes that we might not have been willing to go to otherwise. He has ways of working in our life that are astounding, really. When you read the story of Jonah, it's amazing what takes place. In chapter 1, they immediately have this massive storm that comes up. And God uses all of this. It isn't just to get Jonah to have compassion on the Ninevites, but you find that through this story, those on the ship actually come to worship the true God. 
God takes this whole situation that was a Jonah running away from his mission and he turns it around for good. So maybe today you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I have been running away. I've missed a lot of opportunities. God can use you right where you're at today to reach people where you're at. God wants to use you today because he used Jonah even though he says, I'm running away from God. I'm supposed to go do this. And they say, well, what are you doing that for? And pretty soon they're to the point of being willing to throw him overboard. But just like that massive whale that came shooting out of the water, we don't know what exactly it was that, that took place in this story as far as what kind of fish it was and what it was that swallowed Jonah. But look at Jonah 1 in verse 17. It says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Can you imagine what it was like as they took Jonah and they throw him overboard to all of a sudden see this massive fish come and swallow Jonah? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Jonah to think, here I am, this is probably the end, and all of a sudden you get swallowed by this massive fish. Imagine the smell. You read in his prayer there, he talks about the weeds wrapping around him. He talks about being in this dark place that he compares to hell. He says, it's a ter- it was terrible, and I just cried out to God. Through this story and seeing what God did in Jonah's life, I realized something about God. God is intensely passionate to use you and to use me to reach people who don't know him. God wants desperately for people to receive an invitation of his mercy. God wants to do whatever it takes, so much so that he's willing to go to these extremes for Jonah. He's willing to have him swallowed by a whale, to have him in the belly of a whale for three days as he's this there in agony, wondering what's going to happen next. God really wanted Jonah to go on this mission to Nineveh. God really wanted for Nineveh to have the opportunity to hear the message that he wanted to send them. So what happens with Jonah? He talks about the prayer that he prays in chapter 2. And then in verse 10 it says, So the Lord spoke to the fish. God has power over all of creation and he's using it to reach people. The things that are going on on this planet, God allows some things um, and he uses them to awaken us to our need for him. Jonah 2 verse 10 says, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And God is such a God of mercy, because then he goes on to offer Jonah. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Preach to it the message that I tell you. With God, he's a God of second chances. He's a God who wants to give us those opportunities to reach people. Maybe you've walked past that person in the past. Maybe in the past you've mistreated somebody and you think there's no chance that I could be a witness to them anymore. God still wants you to reach them. God still wants to use you to tell them the message of his love, to share that message of love with them. That's what he does with Jonah. As Jonah goes to Nineveh, it's this great city. It's described. It was one of the the great cities of the ancient Near East. They've found some incredible archaeological discoveries here. They've found a gigantic library with tons of books there. It was a a very civilized society. But it, it tells us that when he went to this city, 
Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. So here you have this huge city that likely what it's talking about is in order for him to share this message, he would have had to have walked up and down the streets. There were enough streets that he would have had to walk for three days in order to be able to really share this message with the people. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Prophecy can be a powerful thing to compel people. In the Bible, you have the entire book of Daniel. You have the the book of Revelation that especially focus on apocalyptic prophecy. Prophecy that reveals world events. And what is the purpose of all of that prophecy? Why does God give us these pictures of beasts and, and of all these different time periods? And what is it all about? Well, the title of Revelation says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of prophecy is to direct us to God, to give us repentance, to help us to see that God is alive, that he is active, that he's a soon coming judge, and that we need to respond to his message of mercy today. And so Jonah goes into the city and he's proclaiming this prophecy. He says, 40 days from now, this place is going to be destroyed. What would you do if somebody walked into your hometown, Templeton or Paso Robles or Tascadero, and began going down the street screaming out, 40 days, and this place will be destroyed by God. We probably, I I think we may have seen some people like that before, or at least you've seen it where their cars are totally covered with uh, uh, messages about warning that that everything's going to be destroyed or the world's going to come to an end. Well, Jonah gives this message, and it's incredible to see the response of the people. You have the king who proclaims that the people all the way down to the cattle even, should respond to this. And he, he clothes all the people in sackcloth and ashes. They, they respond with repentance to the love of God. And they say, maybe there's just a possibility that, that when God sees that we respond, that we call out to him, maybe there's a possibility that he will relent and he won't do this great thing. And in verse 10, it says, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the God that we serve. A God of mercy, a God of justice. We wonder sometimes, why is the world going on so long? Why is time prolonged so long? Well, the Bible is very clear that time keeps going on because Jesus is merciful. Because God wants as many as possible to be saved. He's not willing that any should be lost, 1 Peter 3 tells us. God wants to do whatever it takes to save as many as possible. So if I was Jonah, you would think that maybe I would be excited about this. Here I've preached this message of prophecy. Here I've preached for people to to realize that destruction is coming. But what happens in Jonah can all too easily happen in our own life. And that is that Jonah begins to think, well, what are people going to think of me? It becomes about Jonah in this story. Jonah is is concerned because he said that the world was going to end in 40 days and now it's not going to end. What are they going to think about me? And verse 1 of chapter 4 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, 
Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Isn't this incredible? Jonah says, I know that you're like this, God. I know that you're merciful and gracious. I know that you're compassionate. That's why I ran away in the first place, because I knew that you were just going to have mercy on these people. So often, in our own lives, it can become about us. And we lose that heart of mercy that beats in God's heart. That heart that Jesus had that was so desperate to see as many saved as possible. But God is patient even with Jonah. As we read on in the story, he goes outside the city. And he, verse 5 says, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He's hoping that maybe God will still destroy it. Maybe he'll still call down fire from heaven. Maybe this city will still be destroyed. I hope that they get wiped out. I hope they get what they deserve because Nineveh was quite a terrible city. If you read in Nahum about the prophecies against Nineveh, which Nineveh ended up being destroyed later on, Nineveh was this city that was full of bloodshed, it says. It was full of robbery. It was, it was this wicked place that Jonah's thinking, how in the world can God be merciful to these people of all people? They're that neighbor down the street that you think, there's no way. There may be people on my block that can learn about Jesus, but I'm just not sure about that family. This past camp meeting, we were uh, at doing a young adult meeting, and we had people come share her testimony. She was sharing about how God had totally transformed her life. She had gone through some abuse and some different things when she was a young girl. But as she got older, she began to act out in a lot of different ways. She began to get into some very demonic music. And she showed us these pictures of the girl that she had become. She would wear, she had part of her head shaved, and she would wear these devil's horns on the side of her head. She had, you know, tattoos all over. She was... uh, She had her hair dyed different colors. She had all these piercings. She said that she'd gotten to the place where when she walked into a store and a little kid looked at her and screamed that she got this odd sense of satisfaction inside. When I heard this, it was unbelievable to me because the girl who was sharing this was this nice looking girl who looked like she could be a Bible worker, like You couldn't see her tattoos because they were covered by clothes. She had this nice smile on her face. And then she began to tell about how Jesus had reached her in that mess. And how Jesus had totally flipped her life upside down. And as I heard that story, I began to realize that the people I think it's impossible for God to reach, God doesn't feel that way. God knows that he can reach people even when they're at the depths of what I might think is impossible for somebody to turn to God. That's what happened for that girl. And that's what happened for the Ninevites. Here they were, this wicked city that God says they deserve to be destroyed. And yet God had mercy on them. So Jonah's not too happy about this. He's sitting there on the hillside. He's looking down, just hoping that this city that's just a plague to society, maybe it'll just be wiped out because it deserves judgment. It deserves to be wiped out. Look at what happens in this story. 
in verse 6. It says, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So this plant comes up, and they, uh, they've done research on the different kinds of plants this might have been, but this massive plant comes up just overnight, and it creates this shade over Jonah. There he is, sitting on the hillside, and now he's comfortable. He's enjoying life. He's no longer having the sun beating down on him. Life is good. He's very grateful for this plant. Verse 7, But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. He said, God, I'd rather die than be out here baking in the sun. This is miserable. My life, look at what's happening in my life. All these terrible things are happening to me. This is miserable, God. Then God said to Jonah, verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? God says to Jonah, Jonah, you care about this plant that was helping you to have a a life of ease. You care that that was taken away from you, but you don't care for 120,000 souls, 120,000 people who don't know their left from their right hand. That's likely to indicate that they didn't know which way to turn. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They, they had no idea what was right and what was wrong. They didn't know what they were doing. Friends, there's a world out there that doesn't know what they're doing. They haven't heard the good news like you have heard it. There may be people in your life who you say, why do they treat me like that? Why do they act like that? They're terrible people. But maybe they haven't experienced the grace of God like you have experienced in your life. And maybe God is leading you to pray a prayer like Jesus prayed. As Jesus was there on the cross, as they were nailing him to the cross, he said, what did he pray? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. God said, this city, Nineveh, Jonah, they didn't even know their right hand from their left. They didn't know what was the right way. And so, Jonah, I sent you to warn them. I sent you to give them a chance. Shouldn't you have compassion on them? I've recognized in my own life, though, that so often I'm more concerned about what is going on in my life. I'm concerned about the ease of my own life. I'm concerned if if things get difficult in my life or if my car breaks down or if I'm having difficulty in a relationship or if I'm having financial struggles. All these things are burdening me down to the point where when I walk into the grocery store and I see that person who I can see on their face, that look of sadness, if I were to take the time and to look and to see that they need somebody to even just smile at them, somebody to reach out to them. Or I walk down the street and I pass multitudes of people without even paying attention to them. 
It's so easy to get distracted by our own lives and to sit it out, basically, just like Jonah, to sit there on the hillside and, and to hope that somebody reaches those people or that something happens to those people and to be just sitting on the sideline myself. And God's saying, you're so worried about your everyday life. You're, you're just going to work. You're taking care of your family. But you're forgetting that there's a world out there that's desperate to see my love. You're forgetting that there's a world that, that needs to know the compassion of a loving Savior. You're forgetting that, that there's 7 billion people on this planet. Do you know that they've estimated that out of the 7 billion people on this planet... There are at least 2 billion, more than 2 billion, who are Christians. This is great. These are people who have gotten to hear the gospel and they at least have acknowledged that they want to be part of the Church of Christ in all different kinds of denominations, all different ways. They've at least learned a little bit about Jesus and that's a wonderful thing. But they estimate that there's another 2 billion people, a little more than that, who have heard the gospel, but maybe, I believe, they haven't seen a clear picture of Jesus and so they've rejected the gospel, or they just haven't accepted it yet. But beyond that, they estimate that there's over 2 billion people, China and other places where the gospel hasn't yet penetrated, who have not even heard of Jesus, who have not heard the gospel for themselves. There is a world out there that desperately needs to learn the gospel, and too often I'm concerned about my life and what's going on in my life and that plant that was giving me shade, and now it's gone, and and what am I going to do about these situations in my life? And Jesus is saying, can't you take the time to care about a world out there that needs to know that I love them, that I care about them, that I want them to experience eternal life? Do you recognize that compared to this brief moment of time that you have, eternity is so vast? Jesus had this kind of heart. Go with me to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus displays the love of God like we never were able to picture just from the revelations in the Old Testament. God was so good to reveal himself in so many different ways throughout the prophets and, and showing up on Mount Sinai and showing up again and again through Old Testament history. But God recognized that that wasn't enough for us really to understand his love. And so he took on humanity and he came in human form. And Jesus came and demonstrated to us what the character of God is like and how he wants us to live, how he wants us to treat the world around him. So in Matthew chapter 9, we get a picture of how Jesus felt about multitudes of people who were in need. Matthew chapter 9, in verse 35, it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus' ministry incorporated three things, teaching and preaching and healing. There's not just one way to reach people. Sometimes we think it's only through Bible studies or it's only through that prophecy seminar, but it's also when we go out and we we reach their physical needs, when we take care of their houses, when we reach out to people in a multitude of ways. Jesus reaches out to them, but then in verse 36, he recognizes a problem. Though he's been going through all the cities, he's been trying to minister to them, he's been doing everything possible to reach the people. He looks out and he says this, or he, first he notices this, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. The Greek verb there is 
splagizomai. It's a, a verb that, it's like your inner bowels are like moved inside of you. He's just compelled. He's, he's filled with compassion and angst as he looks out and he sees the people. He sees multitudes of people. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Describes uh, the words that are used there. One word is uh, esculumenoi, which comes from the verb skuloi, when it talks about that they were weary, they were faint. That verb, it means basically to flay or to skin. It's used uh, for meaning to distress or to harass, to worry, to trouble. The people were harassed, bewildered by those who should have taught them. He looks out and he sees this group of people who the rabbis are teaching them all of these burdens, all of these things that are are not directing them to Jesus, and he sees that they're weary. But not only that, he sees that they're weary and that they're also scattered. The verb there is is, uh, ermenoi, which basically means to cast down. It's from the verb pipto. To cast down, to prostrate, either from drunkenness or from a mortal wound. So both of these refer to the people as being devastated, the people being weary, the people not having direction, the people desperately needing a shepherd. And Jesus looks out on this. He has compassion on them. And so he turns to his disciples and he says something after saying they're weary, they're scattered, the, the people need a shepherd. He doesn't just say, I need to work harder. I need to do more. But he says this. In verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. Sometimes when we look around us, we think, well, there aren't even people out there that want to hear about Jesus. There there isn't even a place for me to share. But Jesus promises you that the harvest truly is plentiful. It's bountiful. He says there is plenty of harvest out there. There's plenty of people who need to hear the message. The harvest truly is plentiful. That's the perspective that Jesus has when he looks out and he says, he sees sheep that are scattered, sheep that are weary. He sees all of this going on. He says, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says, there's an opportunity. There's need for many to be out there, many to be representing me, but the laborers are few. I'm the only one going out here. I'm the one going around from city to city, healing and teaching and preaching, but the laborers are few. So what is the solution? Verse 38 says, Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest. Jesus describes himself as the Lord of the harvest. He's the one who's overseeing the work of the church. He's the one who's watching out for those two billion people and giving them a revelation of Jesus, though missionaries may not have reached them yet. The harvest truly is plentiful. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word there used to send out laborers is ekbalo. Now, when he sends out the apostles, he uses the word apostello, which means to send, to send out laborers into the vineyard. You would think that that's what he would be using, that word. But instead he uses the word ekbalo. Balo we kind of have a similar word in English. It basically is a verb for to throw. It says, throw out into the harvest laborers. And he doesn't just use balo, but he uses ek, 
Balo, which means to throw or cast out. Throw out into the harvest. Now, when Jesus used this, this uh, word, ekbalo, he used it when, to describe when he went into the temple and he cast out those who were buying and selling. It's used when demons were cast out. It's a very forceful term. It's a, a term for when God is on the move in a really powerful way. And he says, pray that God will throw out into the harvest laborers. And he says to pray for it. When he says to pray for it, it's not, again, just the ordinary word to pray. But it's a word that indicates to beg for it, to plead for it. And it's used in the imperative, which means it's a, it's a command to pray. It's not just an option that we, we ask this prayer, but it's a command that we should be praying this because God has told us to. Not only that, but it's in the aorist tense, which means that it's not just a continuing thing that's been going on, but he's saying, you should begin praying this now. So this is something that you haven't been doing, but that you need to start doing. Pray, beg, earnestly plead with God for the laborers for the harvest, that he would throw out laborers into his harvest. Jesus says that this is the prayer to pray, but it's really interesting to see what takes place in the very next verse. And when he had called his 12 disciples to them, he gave them power. So I imagine that after he tells them to pray this prayer, that they probably got together and began to pray this prayer. They probably said, okay, well, let's pray it now. And they began to pray, Lord, would you send out laborers into the harvest? And the disciples are just thinking, yes, Lord, send so-and-so. And maybe they're praying for specific friends or specific family members to be thrown out into the harvest. And then after their prayer time, Jesus pulls them together and he appoints 12 of them. And he says, now you go into the harvest. You see, when we pray this prayer, it's often that God starts with us because it's us that needs to be thrown out into the harvest. It's me who needs to be thrown out into the harvest. I remember being in high school and really not enjoying going to church. I would go to church because I knew my parents would want me there. But when my parents were gone because they traveled and I finally had my license and I had the opportunity not to go to church, I would figure out ways to make them think that I was at church. In fact, I went to the extent that I would drive up to the front door of church, I would walk in, I would shake the greeter's hand, I would take a bulletin, and then I would walk out the back door of the church, hop in my car, and drive home. I'd set the, the bulletin on the counter, the kitchen counter at home, and when my parents came home, oh, Zach's been to church, this is great. I despised going to church. But something changed. It wasn't a couple years later that I began to love going to church. And as I've thought back about what made the difference, it wasn't that suddenly there were better sermons at church. It wasn't that suddenly there was better worship sets at church. It wasn't that something miraculous happened and I had these amazing friends at church with me. But you know what changed? When I went to church, it wasn't about me anymore. I decided to give my life in service to God. So when I went to church, I was looking for that person who needed some encouragement. I was looking for that guest who, this was their first time at church, and I said, we've got to do something to reach them. And I was excited about being at church, about being there for Sabbath school, about getting to church, because it wasn't about me anymore, but it was about those that Jesus loved 
so deeply. If you want your church experience to be changed, I challenge you to pray the prayer that Jesus challenged us to pray. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. And then give him permission. Say, and God, if it takes it, start with me. Would you throw me out into the harvest? I give you full permission to begin with me. In the book Gospel Workers, there's this amazing story that's told. She recounts about how in a town in New England, a well was being dug. When the work was nearly finished, while one man was still at the bottom, the earth caved in and buried him. We just had an earthquake here this last week. Can you imagine what happens? They're there, they're digging this well. He's at the bottom of the well. They get to the, the well is nearly dug, it says, and then the earth caves in on top of him. Instantly, the alarm was sent out, and mechanics, farmers, merchants, lawyers hurried breathlessly to the rescue. Ropes, ladders, spades, and shovels were brought by eager, willing hands. Save him, oh, save him, was the cry. Men worked with desperate energy till the sweat stood out on their, as beads upon the brow, and their arms trembled with exertion. They're doing everything possible to save these people. I imagine that we would do the same thing if this church, suddenly there was an earthquake and it fell down and we knew that there was a child from our congregation buried in this church. What would we be doing in order to save them? We wouldn't be holding anything back. We'd be digging with all of our might just trying to get to that child. At length, the pipe was thrust down through which they shouted to the man to answer if he was still alive. The response came, I'm alive, but hurry, it is fearful in here. With a shout of joy, they renewed their efforts, and at last he was reached and saved, and the cheer that went up seemed to pierce the very heavens. He is saved, it echoed throughout every street in the town. Goes on to say, was this too great of zeal and interest, too great of enthusiasm to save one man. It surely was not. But what is the loss of a temporal life in comparison with the loss of a soul? If the threatened loss of a life will arouse in a human heart a feeling so intense, should not the loss of a soul arouse even deeper solicitude in men who claim to realize the danger of those apart from Christ? Shall not the servants of God show as great a zeal in laboring for the salvation of souls as was shown for the life of that one man buried in a well? God is longing for us to have the same heart of compassion that he has. He's longing for us to not just sit there on a hillside watching to wait and see what's going to happen to the world. Is everything going to come to an end this September? Is We have all these different things lining up. Is, is the world going to be destroyed? Is there going to be a massive earthquake? What's going to happen? And Jesus says, why don't you get to work? Why don't we become laborers? Why don't you pray this prayer to throw me out into the harvest so that I can see as many saved as possible? This is the heart of Jesus. Jesus' heart that was moved with compassion, wanting for as many to be saved as possible. So I don't know about you, but I want to pray that prayer. It's a radical prayer. It's a prayer that will change your life. There's a book by Derek Morris, The Radical Prayer, where he describes praying this prayer and how it transformed his life and how it's transformed many other people's lives. I encourage you, if you get a chance to get this book, but I challenge you more than that. 
daily pray this prayer. Lord, would you throw me out into the harvest today? Would you give me opportunities? Would you open my eyes to the world's need out there so that I don't just go on worried about the plant that's destroyed, worried about the stuff in my life, being so burdened with life that I don't have time to love the people around me? Let's pray that prayer. Lord, would you send out laborers into Templeton? Would you throw out laborers into Atascadero, into Templeton, into Paso Robles? And would you start with me? Would you give me an opportunity today to witness to somebody, to share the love of Jesus with them? That prayer will radically change your life. It's a prayer that Jesus is just waiting to answer. When we wholeheartedly pray for this, he's going to transform our lives and it's going to be the most blessed experience possible. To see souls come to a saving knowledge of him is, there's nothing like it. There's nothing better than to see people accept Jesus. Do you want to pray that prayer with me? Say, God, would you throw us out into the harvest? Would you send us out and we have this mailer with the Bible studies, would you send us out to, to people who are desperately wanting to hear about Jesus. Do you want to join me in praying this prayer? Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we don't have what it takes to really be able to witness to people in the way that we want to. But we're here giving you permission this morning, saying, would you throw us out into the harvest? Would you make us laborers in the harvest? So often, Father, we've been so distracted by the cares and concerns of this life when there are billions of people who need a revelation of Jesus' love. Would you move our hearts with compassion today? We can't do it of ourselves, but we're asking for your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts this morning and every day as we pray this prayer. Lord, would you throw us out into the harvest. Would you send out laborers into your harvest? Thank you that the harvest is plentiful, that there are many who you're just waiting to bring so that we can share the love of Jesus with them. Bless us as we go out to share the gospel this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.